You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Nice, huh? Bigger than I looked in the pictures. When I think of home, I think of a place where there's love overflowing. You couldn't imagine a nicer place to live. I wish I was home. I wish I was back there with the things I've been knowing. This home is ours. Begins with one family. They came from someplace worse. We'll have to make this place worse. What's worse than worse? Heard them folks in Compton straight up evil, man. Up there. There's something bad in this house. I don't like it. We got our eyes on you. <laughs> we do this till it gets and welcome once again to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perón and today we are going to cover two television streaming shows, one new, one old, that I've recently grabbed onto. First one up is Them, Covenant. Wow, this is a new horror anthology series on Prime that takes place in the 50s about an African-American family that moves to Compton, California. I could not have been any more surprised than I was at how good this show is. It grabs so many elements from horror genres and real-life social issues having to do with racism. I really did not expect to like this one as much as I did, and I can't wait to share my thoughts with you about it. Second show is Narcos which is a show that's been on for a while, but I recently jumped on it. And again, it also grabbed me. And in a way, kind of like um, if you guys remember The Sopranos or The Wire, that's how this show kind of grabs you and brings you into these situations. And you get to experience it, again, from a sort of a historical perspective, you know, the whole 70s to 90s time period of the drug war and exactly how things went down in the actual area where it's taking place not so much in the states but in this case in colombia amazing acting in both of these series so let's just get started with them Television is an amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. Okay, the first show we are going to discuss today is Them. Them is currently streaming on Prime, Amazon Prime, and just like many times before, did not get much of a heads up about this show. Just heard or just saw a trailer, something about a black horror 
show. It's like, okay, Black Harsh, whatever, let's see what happens. There have been some inroads lately, I guess you could say, into what would be considered Black Horror. Obviously, the biggest newcomer to the scene is Jordan Peele. He did Get Out and Us. If you guys remember, I liked Get Out more than Us. Us was a little too out there for me. It did have some of the elements of Get Out, but I preferred Get Out much much better. I still kept saying to myself, and I'm still on the camp, and actually it's funny because I just recently recorded it off cable or something, and I'm like, I got to give us another try because maybe there's something I missed there that didn't just connect with me or whatever. But anyway, I'm always looking for what is the next thing he's going to do in terms of suspense and horror and that kind of thing because yes i do appreciate his comedy you know i i i wasn't a jordan peele fan just because i'd never really watched the show but every now and then i would catch one of the skits on youtube it's like oh man i should be watching this show this show's pretty funny but when he moved to the horror genre i was like wait a minute let's give this a try and wow he did a pretty good job Then after that, the only other thing I remember lately was HBO did Lovecraft Country. And that was one that, again, oh, that looks interesting. They gave it a shot. At first, it kind of was like, oh, this is interesting. This this could go somewhere because it started to combine, you know, those the two elements of the, like, let's say the 1950s racial issues with some kind of a horror supernatural theme. I watched a couple of episodes and it kind of went... Way, 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 way supernatural, kind of fast. And it, I kind of fell off that show. I kind of like, yeah, okay, well, they're, they're being super supernatural. (laughs) So, you know, that one didn't work out for me that well. Shows that tackled racial issues, uh, with, with some kind of genre twist up to that point, I would say, for television anyway, uh, Watchmen, the HBO last, you know, uh, reimagining or sequel or whatever you want to call it of Watchmen, that whole Tulsa scene in the beginning of the series and how it kind of shapes some of those characters was incredible. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, genre people started thinking and talking about it. It's like, oh, we never knew this. This was, this is history. This actually happened. And then, you know, you do a little research like, yeah, it actually did happen. (laughs) It's something that kind of, you know, overall, you know, mainstream wise, you kind of gloss over it because you really don't want to talk about something like that too much. Just a lot of, just like a lot of historical events that don't paint certain things in a positive manner, you tend to kind of gloss over them and just focus on the good stuff. And let's not talk about the bad stuff, but that was an event that actually happened. So all of a sudden now you have another show that is going to tackle some of those historical racial issues. And in this particular show, let me just say off the bat, similar to when I reviewed Antebellum, there is a very, very deep divide with this show. There's a lot of negative reviews and there's some positive reviews. <laughs> I'm not seeing too many of them, or at least uh, um, maybe I'm looking in the wrong place. But again, just like this other film, I love this show. I love this just like I love that movie, how they took a historical thing and gave it a twist. Here's ex- This is exactly what you're doing with this show. To me, the best way to describe this show, and from what I understand, it's going to be an anthology series that where you... Focus on a certain topic, let's say, and maybe move on, most likely time-wise, to a different location. I hope. I hope that's what it is, because that's the feeling I'm getting from it. The best way to describe it for me would be a... It's a combination of telling a racial story in terms of the struggles and the unfairness and the divide and the problems with racism... In this particular case, they started in the 50s. You know, they're not started. Well, that's not necessarily true (laughs) because you do get to an episode where you get to the crux of what happened with this family. Something that happens like in the, I don't know if it's the 1800s, in that similar location because they're in Compton. Again, you know, you think of Compton today and you're like, wait a minute, Compton. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So you're combining that issue, the racial racism issues with, I would say, a movie like The Shining. 
I found so much of The Shining in this. There's so many things in this series that I liked, and I can't wait to see more. And I'm not sure where to give the credit. I don't know if it's the creator of the show, the executive producer. His name is Little Marvin. Or the different directors, or the cinematographer, or I don't know. I don't know exactly where to put the credit. But there's a look to the show. It's a very, shall we say, grindhousey kind of look. There are certain parts of the show that remind me of Texas Chainsaw Massacre in terms of how gritty it could get. Not necessarily gory, and it is gory, don't get me wrong, but the grit, the the rawness of how you you know your your the, the color palettes that are being used to portray an image. Just the credits alone, the opening credits, which are not really opening credits, but the opening titles. There's something about the way that they just throw them at you. It just hits you in the face. I remember there was a show uh, a while back, which was a a television version of the uh, movie The Exorcist. And they made a TV show. I think it only lasted one season. I don't even remember how long it lasted. One or two seasons tops. But anyway, what I love the best about that show was that the title of the show would slap you in the face with huge, huge letters, and it would be like, boom, and it would just hit you. Here, they do something a little similar to that, where the graphics of the show, the title card, hits you right with big, bright red letters, like blood red letters, right in the front of the episode. And it has this, this again, this grindhouse kind of 70s look, where you have the, the copyright on the bottom, and you could read it. It's really weird. You could also say it has a Tarantino kind of look to it, too. There are certain scenes where the screen will split into two different images, like a side-by-side -side image. You guys remember Woodstock, the movie, that kind of, you know, two events happening at the same time, separated by a line in the middle. Sometimes the line will move one way or sometimes it'll move the other way. You know, that kind of, those kind of like 70s pan-tilt split-screen Tricks that uh, people used to use. Very 70s uh, looking. The show itself is about a family that is kind of recovering from some trauma and moves into a new town. And again, the year is 1953. So you know what's going to happen. They're driving to town and people are looking at them like Martians had just landed. And it's really difficult to find <laughs> good guys, if you will, on the side of the people that are already living there. It's very stereotypical in terms of this family is coming from another part of the country because something horrible has happened to them in this other area where they used to live. I forget if it was somewhere in the Carolina, North Carolina or something that resulted in their the younger boy dying, being killed. That brings them to this other part of the country to kind of restart their lives. And he lands a good job. And what one of the things that, that I kept saying to myself, and that is like, well, wouldn't they know that this is what was going to happen? In other words, it's not like you should have expected it, but we, we know where this is going. And they're not being ignorant in terms of thinking that they're going to be welcomed with open arms. But at the other hand, I keep saying to myself, don't go, just don't go there. And again, you're doing one of these things where you're telling the character not to do something, knowing full well that they have to do it or else you wouldn't have this show. <laughs> you're, you're trying to control the character. You can't control the character. You're just a viewer. But anyway, so they moved into this town and every conceivable thing goes wrong in terms of how people react. And the, the neighbors are... Kind of over the top. They are way over the top. There's one actress who plays like the the, the across-the-street wife. Uh, her name is Allison Pill. And she plays like the, the meanest, most uh, controlling of all the housewives in the group. And she uh, is played, like I said, by this actress, Allison Pill. And, I, and I've seen her before. She was in Devs. She kind of played the bad guy kind of person. And she was in Picard. And she kind of played almost an unintentional bad guy kind of person. And in this, in this one, she's completely bonkers, crazy bad guy in this. The twists and turns that happens are unbelievable. I mean, they're just incredible. The 
things that happens to this family kind of stems from, I would say, more or less it being a ghost. Something happened 100 years in the past or whatever that resulted in the area they're in, probably even the house that they're in, being haunted. And as a result of what happened, which was very racially motivated 100 years ago, it is affecting this family, all of them, all the kids and the parents. They're all being affected by it. And it is, like I said, it is very, very The Shining-esque. Again, I, I cannot <laughs> gush enough over this this show. It is scary. It is suspenseful. It is cinematography is fantastic. The actors are great. You might recognize a few of them here or there. You do learn a little bit about the motivation behind a lot of these, you know, terrified people that are, uh, oh my God, black people are moving in and their house prices are going to drop and and so-and-so just sold their house and they're moving somewhere else because they got a promotion and they're leaving us behind. And why can't we do the same thing? Because these people are moving. You know, it's you get that entire dynamic, that entire conversation that you probably heard a million times and you might have seen that dynamic take place. You get it here. But then you also get a little bit of the background of the individual people and what's motivating them. There's the the... the the lady across the street, the, the, the main villain, if you will, she is like super controlling and unhappy in her marriage and her husband, something's going on with her husband. It is slightly hinted that there's something happening with him. He's not around too much. I'm not going to spoil it because it might have something to do with a future uh, season or something. I don't know if they're going to continue with any of these characters. I doubt it. You find certain characters that you think are good and end up being bad. You know, they're very nice and polite and helpful, but then you see them behind closed doors, what they're doing with the bank and the real estate company, and they're getting money to make sure certain things happen. You get the whole background of how these houses are being sold for way more money that they're worth to black people because they want to be able to kind of flood the market and have people sell so the banks can buy at a low price and then resell them back to black individuals at a higher price. So you get a little behind the scenes of this whole scheme that's taking place where the market is kind of being manipulated to make more money by exploiting the people that are there and the people that are coming in. They're using them against each other to inflate the price of the houses and the, the inflate the price of the mortgages and the mortgage rates and all that stuff. You, it, again, it's fantastic how you get that look, that behind the scenes thing. One of the daughters you get to explore, you know, because she's in school, she's like a high school, I guess, kid. And you get to explore all the insecurities of this individual of being, let's say, the only black person in the high school and all the pressures that she has and all the ideas that she starts to develop about the difficulties of being what she is or how she is. And it's one of those kind of things where they kind of, the, the individual starts to kind of resent and hate themselves because of the way people act towards them. Uh, so you get a, a, a that perspective too. The father, more or less the lead character, man, he's coming off of PTSD issues from the war coming into this and getting, you know, hassled. I mean, this whole series takes place within 10 days. Each episode is one day of them being there. And again, if you think of The Shining, you go from day one to day 10, you know, that entire crazy things that happens to this family. The thing that you have to kind of remind yourself when you're watching this is that this is not a historical film. It's giving you a lot of historical things. It's giving you a lot of examples of things that have happened and then that happened and then continue to happen probably in some areas. But this is primarily a horror series. So there is going to be over the top things that are going to make things a little unrealistic because that's the whole point of this. In the same way that, you know, some of the best let's say sci-fi, even like Star Trek or something. Remember, if you want to give a morality tale of, of a situation, you wrap it around science fiction. So you're 
delivering a good story with a good message, but you're being entertained by but the, by the sci-fi. Here, the vessel, the the delivery vessel, if you will, is horror. The message is pretty clear what it is. It's racism. Now, going back to the father, the other thing about the father is that you, in certain episodes, you get to see who, you know, which particular ghost, if you will, or which particular incarnation of this ghost is haunting him. Obviously, all the things that have happened, everything stems from this incident in North Carolina where they lost their child. That scene is bonkers. My wife was there when I was watching that whole sequence. And unfortunately for her, she hadn't seen everything else. But she was like, okay, that's it. This show is horrible. I can't watch this show. Just because of that sequence. It is a brutal sequence that kind of triggers what happens or the things that are happening with the wife and her breakdown based on that event. Same thing with the father. The father is also incredibly affected. The kids are affected too, not as much, but they're all kind of affected by that. But the main thing is that this is all happening because of something that happened way, way before that. But the way that I figured is that these ghosts from 100 plus years ago are taking advantage of the trauma that this family is suffering. And again, the manner in which the trauma is exploited is through what would we consider to be the tropes of racism or the stereotypical racist events that you hear about and you know about. And again, you might have even experienced or seen some of the events like this. These ghosts or these beings are taking advantage and amplifying them and pushing those events to drive this family even crazier and crazier every time. It's bad enough that you're dealing with this, with these insane racists, you know, that are very, you know, Stepford wifey kind of area. You know, everybody's dressed nicely. They have nice jobs. They manicure lawns. But man, do they turn on you when you don't look the certain way that they expect you to look or act. Going back to the father again. <laughs> the One of the major characters or, or haunts or, or ghosts, if you will, is the character of a, a like a minstrel singer. It's, he's like a dance singer. He's basically a black man in black face. Let's, let's put it that way. And the interactions that he has with this character. Now, this character, again, look up the history of minstrel shows and what's the big deal with blackface? Look it up and you'll realize what is the big deal about it. And in this show, it is one of the most frightening characters that they could come up with. Another aspect of how racism is portrayed here, which, again, it kind of intertwines with these ghosts and these hallucinations, if you will, is... The husband's experience at work, he is brought in as basically the only black employee there. And his direct boss seems to be a little weird because he, one minute he's very friendly towards him, but the next minute he's like crazy mean. He, it's almost like he's bipolar or something. And all the things that he has to do in order to adjust to those, to his boss's kind of like mood swings and you get to a point where he has a chance to impress the boss's boss, and he kind of does, but then the boss, his direct boss, gets very upset about it. So, you know, there's so many things playing at the same time that are kind of like pummeling this family. You know, work is just very difficult because of all the weirdness of all of a sudden having a, a black person, you know, integrated into the workforce. His younger daughter also, uh, her connection or her uh, manifestation with these ghosts seems to come more directly from a book that she's reading. There's a certain character, I guess, that she's kind of afraid of, and that character sort of materializes and haunts her, you know, at home in the basement, that crazy basement of theirs where those crazy things happened, you know, 100 years before. At school, just like the uh, older daughter is having those same issues at school and the, you know, the ghost connections are happening there a lot also. Another interesting aspect of the show that I noticed, and again, they're throwing you these historical tidbits that are real. 
uh, and, and I mentioned before the whole issue of redlining, of how certain neighborhoods would be considered black neighborhoods, and financially they would be deprived of money, and they would be sold, you know, mortgage-wise more expensive than the white neighborhoods, and they were purposely bringing black people into white neighborhoods so that they could sell low, and the bank gets to buy high, and then resell at a higher mortgage rate to black people, and that whole scheme that they worked out for many, many years is the issue of covenantry, which is funny because that's kind of like the the subtitle of the of the season. You know, the, the show is called Them, and this season is Covenant because it has to do with those ghosts, those religious uh, people back in the uh, 18-whatevers. But the issue of covenantry, and that is there's a scene where they first move into the house and they're signing like their final paperwork. It's almost like the closing, I guess. And there is fine print in the in the contract about no black people allowed, that you cannot sell to black people. And the real estate agent kind of explains, oh, this is just an old law that, you know, we don't really go by anymore because this is around the time where those kind of laws were kind of like put away and, and you couldn't enforce any of that. And that, you know, I, the, the wife obviously is very disturbed by saying, you knew about that this is a house that, you know, we're not supposed, you know, we're, technically we're not, we weren't allowed to move here. And, uh, you know, isn't this going to cause problems for us? And he was like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we'll deal with it. And, you know, that's that it's true it's so true because i remember a friend of ours who purchased a home i don't know maybe about 15 years ago this is back when i used to live in jersey and uh, they mentioned to us that when they signed their paperwork when they actually read the paperwork you know the fine print the small print there was a clause on their mortgage or on their title or on their something having to do with they would not be any selling to Jews. It's like, oh my God, this stuff is still around. Even, you know, like <laughs> 60, 70, you know, 80 years later, that stuff still trickles in every I Granted, I mean, nothing like what you experience in here. But the fact that some of those uh, rules and conditions still exist on paperwork, at least, uh, that they weren't, they haven't been able to kind of flush them out. It's really, really amazing. So, Overall, again, as you can probably tell by now, I cannot recommend this enough. I know that it is a completely dividing show. People are either 100% for it or 100% against it. It doesn't surprise me one bit, as I mentioned earlier with the movie Antebellum, where people were exactly in that same camp. It's either, oh my God, this is the worst thing in the world. I don't even think why would anybody watch this to... This was amazing. It's incredible. For me, personally, again, when you are capable of blending social issues, historical issues, and then you give it a twist, a genre twist, this particular case, the flavor of the genre is horror. Perfect. It works great. I cannot wait until a second season. And from what I understand, the second season is on its way. I'm not sure if they're going to use the same American Horror Story formula of recycling some of the actors in different roles. Don't know if they're going to do that. But I really, really wish we could see these guys again because, man, were they good. They, I mean, just across the board, the family, they are all they were great. The bad guys, the, the housewife across the street, she is just, oh, my God, you just hate her so much. And it's... It's funny, I listened to a, uh, uh, an interview from her, and she's talking about how one of the things about her character is that she always smiles. Whether she's the happiest person or the most angriest person, she's always smiling at you. She says you cut your throat with a smile on her face. And that was one of the characteristics of that character, that she can pretend to be completely you know, on the level all the time. Uh, she also talked about her, her, her um, costume, how... It was almost kind of like wearing armor, like in the morning she puts on the armor and she becomes that character, but not just for the actor, but for the character. She puts on the armor, she puts on the costume of the housewife. Again, a lot of us were brought up with television version of what the 50, the good old days, everybody likes to talk about the good old days, back when things were good, you know, all that kind of nostalgic bull crap, <laughs> because while things looked a certain way, Things were also very messed up at the same time, but obviously we don't focus on the messed up. We don't want, nobody wants to talk about the messed up part. They like to, you know, you think of the 50s, I think of happy days. <laughs> I mean, you can't have a, a show that's more 
on message than happy days. It's about happy days. Don't get me wrong. I love happy days. But just like a lot of things, you're not getting the full picture. You're getting a, a, an entertainment. You know, you take happy days, take Leave it to Beaver, take Andy and Mayberry, take, you know, all those Father Knows Best, those idealized versions of what that time looked like. And that's how those images were presented to us. But when you have shows that give you the flip side of things that we always grown up thinking there were one way, and now you kind of realize, but wait a minute, they're not one way, they're two different ways. I'm sure 50 years from now, people are going to be depicting these years, the 2000s, as a very positive, technologically, you know, fast moving, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they're not going to want to talk about some of these insane events that we go through that a lot of people wish we could just forget, like an insurrection of the, you know, on the Capitol, you know, race riots, all kinds of things that, you know, could lead to better things at one, you know, one way or the other. But that's the kind of stuff it's kind of like, man, we don't want to talk about that. Let's focus on the good stuff. That's exactly what I think was happening and has been happening forever now, where when it comes to entertainment, you know, a show like Madman, again, you're looking at the 60s and advertising and they're showing you this this underbelly of, oh my God, all these weird, crazy things were still happening, but everybody kind of, kind of stayed on the level. You know, you're still trying to portray a certain image. I guess that's something that will never end is trying to trying to put on those rose-colored glasses and smile through horror. Are you a genre TV, film, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, toy, and convention nerd? Nerds! 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 Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. (laughs) Do you ever wish you could co-host a podcast? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. This just might be your chance. Somebody help me. Help me. Help me. Help me. Shut up. Geekfest Rants is looking for new co-hosts. If you're interested, go to our homepage at geekfestrants.com and click on the hosting icon for more information. All right. Our second show that I want to talk about is... Narcos, which is running on Netflix. I'm personally a little late (laughs) to this show. This show premiered back in 2015. Oh my God. That's like around the time I first got to Florida. That's incredible. I kind of avoided it. I'm not sure why. It just wasn't on my radar. But obviously over the years, the fact that Pedro Pascal has become so popular and then obviously with Mandalorian... You know, it's kind of like, okay, you start to kind of explore, you know, where did he come from? What, what what led him to this particular role? You know, are there some roles out there that you can say, wow, he's just amazing at this or that? And I wasn't too familiar with his work. The only other time I might have seen him was probably in The Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Uh, he was Agent Whiskey. I do remember that. And I do remember looking at him and going, wow, he's an interesting character and he's an interesting actor. But I never at that point make the connection. And this was obviously after he had probably already done, I imagine, possibly finished or being close to finishing with Narcos. He's been in a ton of television shows, lots of cop shows, lots of, you know, lots and lots and lots of stuff like that, that you might have shown up here or there, but never really making a big impact except when he got to Game of Thrones. He had a recurring role, a character that was very, (laughs) very unusual, very distinct, and he meets a really, really gruesome death, becoming a a very memorable character in Game of Thrones. So that's probably another one where it's like, oh, that's right, it was that guy. So yeah, very interesting. Again, for me, that was the connection is like, well, let's, you know what, let's just go and watch this show. You know, let's give it a try. It's still in Netflix. It technically still an active show, even though it seems to have kind of mutated into something different now, which I'll talk about later. But let me give you a very broad, as usual, description and review. The show chronicles the Medellin and Cali cartel of Colombia, 
all the way from the, I guess, early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, bringing it up to the early 90s, mid 90s, something like that, late 90s. And one of the things that I like the best about the show after watching it, especially the first two seasons, let's say, because the show is kind of divided so far, so as far as I watched it, into there's the Colombia side and then there's the Mexico side. I haven't started the Mexico side. And from what I understand, the Mexico side of the show is almost like a reboot. They go back in time and retell the story, I think, from the Mexico perspective. But the Colombian side, which is the one I just watched, as I mentioned, starts in pretty much in the in the in the early early eighties, and after watching the whole thing, the whole show, and how it depicts how these drug trafficking lanes are formed, and who are the key players, and how the you know trying to take down the the heads of all of these different cartels worked, it makes me think of two other great properties that I that I'm a big fan of and that is Miami Vice and the movie Scarface. I've always thought and when I remember when I talked to my friend James, I always connected those two together. Miami Vice gives you the day-to-day cop perspective of trying to fight that particular drug war, let's say. Granted, it is super hyper stylized. Yes, we, we get that. That's That was the thing about Miami Vice. The style, the music, the clothes, the cars. Oh, yeah, and the drugs. <laughs> so it was one way of showing you that. Got it. Scarface, on the other hand, gives you the point of view of one individual that quickly rockets to the top, you know, as a major drug player. Obviously, Al Pacino, we talked about this before, too. He does not look or sound or even act the way you would imagine one of these characters would act. But it's Al Pacino, and he works magic with that role. He, as far as I'm concerned, makes you believe in his character completely, even though logic tells you this guy doesn't look or sound or act like (laughs) of what you think that person would look like or sound like, whatever. But again, that's that's called good acting. But those two properties, to me, they're kind of so connected because obviously they're talking about the same location and the same problem from different perspectives. But it brings it all together. It brings it kind of all together. And you can kind of say that Miami Vice is the child of Scarface. Scarface gave you the gritty reality of it over the top, of course. And then Miami Vice turned it into a stylized, flashy palatable. Remember, MTV Cops was the the way that they talked about them. This, I think, works great also because this is giving you the source of where all this stuff is coming from and how difficult it is to get it in and get it out and control it and the cops having so many issues and problems with the military, with the government. It is just incredible how they did how they chronicle the whole thing i find it similar to if you guys remember the show the wire and hbo where they give you all these different perspectives of the same problem but you're seeing it through the eyes of different people here you get a little bit of that granted a lot of it you split between the criminal and the police the enforcement side The other show that I would compare it to also is Sopranos because, man, do you get to know these people and all the little details and all the little rules of their family and their lives and, you know, their religion and, you know, how they're very religious people, but then they go and kill people. It's very mafia-esque, if you will. And we've seen that before. We've seen that with Sopranos where you're watching these guys who are... You know, they're all about the wife and the mom and the church, and then they're going around killing people, and they have mistresses on the side, and they might kill a couple of relatives in the process. Who cares? You get that. You get that whole insane dynamic of justifying just about everything they do and lying to themselves and lying to their wives and their wives lying to themselves and lying to their kids, and it is just a complete web of lies that makes the family function. And here, again, they show you how it works in a large organization like this. The show was directed, there's a, there's a very heavy involvement from producer-director Jose Padilla. Padilla 
is a name that I remember because I remember a number of years ago, many years ago, his name popped up back when Ain't It Cool used to recommend films on DVD or Blu-ray, whatever. He's a Brazilian director. And he's done a couple of films, I think they're called Elite Squad, about, again, police, crime, and that sort of thing. And he became very famous and very popular because of these films that he made in Brazil. And the star of that film was Wagner Mora. That is a name that probably doesn't ring too much in the States, but in those films, he played the lead cop. And it was all about corruption and cops fighting criminals. And this is a very good, super action-oriented, super violent, very good film. Here, that actor plays Pablo Escobar. He looks almost nothing like <laughs> what he looked like in real life. He gained a lot of weight. I would say he's up there in terms of the, the performance and the way that you get to know the character and, and how involved you get with that character. Cause he is the, you can't, he's definitely not an anti-hero. He is a, a bad guy. He is a bad guy left and right, no matter how you slice it. And it is just incredible. I and mean, I kept watching. I'm like, my God, that is that same actor. And he carries himself and he has that, that gravitas. You know, once you see him enough times, it's like a Tony Soprano kind of. It's like a Gandolfini performance in terms of how he absorbs and chews the scenery. And he does like a lot of his acting also without like even moving his face. You can, you can see exactly what's going on in his mind. And he, by looking at him and, and he doesn't even have to flinch. You could see what's going on in his brain just by his stillness. It's again, don't know if that would work for any character. For, for this particular performance, it works great. I absolutely loved it. So there are a lot of actors that are, again, there are very, there, most of them are unknown actors to us. They're international actors. There's a, a number of Brazilian actors. And one of the things about a show like this is that the only criticism I would have of it is that when you have a very international show like this that takes place in one specific country, is that you don't always have the luxury of being able to hire, okay, this takes place in Colombia. You can't hire 100% Colombian actors because you just don't have that many available here and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So they hire international actors, somewhat Hispanic actors, not necessarily, again, a lot of Brazilian actors here. And you can kind of, I mean, I can tell if you're Hispanic and if you're used to listening to accents and that sort of thing, you can tell this guy's accent is not exactly what it sounds like. Yes, he. if they were all speaking Chinese, I couldn't tell you the difference between the different dialects or the different accents of the different regions. Or if it was a Japanese person talking Chinese, I probably couldn't tell the difference. But when they're speaking Spanish, I can tell that wait a minute, this guy doesn't sound like he even knows Spanish. <laughs> He's saying a couple of words that sound a little weird. Uh, and do, I do find that a lot in, in, in the show, that it, depending on the actor, you get better levels of speaking Spanish. Now, granted, on the DEA side, because you have the, the, the Americans involved in this story, which is where Pedro Pascal and uh, there's another actor who's his partner, uh, Murphy, that's his, that's his partner's name, and Pascal's character is Pena. He's played by Boyd Holbrook. Obviously, they are always talking in English to each other. Pascal, he is playing a, a Hispanic DEA agent, so he can switch languages left and right. So that kind of works for him and for the character. Um, but whenever you're in start encountering other characters that are talking in Spanish, I would go like, wait a minute, he sounds a little weird. He sounds a little, oh, he sounds good. He sounds good. So th there was a little bit of getting used to that. The good thing about the show also is that it does not force you to make it easy on yourself by just dubbing everybody in English or having them all speak English. No. And then, you know, they don't do the trick where, no, you have to listen to the good, the bad guys, you know, and the locals, they're all talking Spanish. If there's a reason for them to start talking English, they will do it, but it's very minimal because they normally don't have a reason to start talking English. So what they do is they use subtitles, which is great because that also helps me when you're dealing with an actor that doesn't sound very Spanish and, and some of the words are getting kind of mixed up and, you know, you can, you can kind of follow along with, with the text. There's a lot of bad guys and some of these bad guys 
follow through season to season and you know from from one storyline to another which is kind of good because there is a sort of a bridge so the first two seasons like i said deals primarily with the medellin cartel which is escobar and it's how do they finally get escobar you know by the end of season two then they switch to the Cali cartel, which is the other rival organization that they're sometimes fighting, and how they kind of take over once Escobar falls apart. And that takes you through season three, which at that point, they start kind of peppering the the groundwork for what will happen in season four, which will then become Mexico. But they start from scratch with Mexico, from what I understand, because I haven't even started Mexico yet. I can't wait. And that's a different one because that starts Diego Luna, if you remember from Rogue One. So that's a whole other world we're going to deal with. Another thing I keep finding is in the translations. And again, I, I, I'm sorry to keep harping on these things because these are things you only notice when you understand what's going on. That's, that's the weird part is that they use a word a lot of times that is meant to be an insult. And the word is marica. And marica is slang. Let's say, for example, if this was English, the slang would be fag. Now, I know that depending on what country fag is, if you're in England, that means cigarettes. If you're here, it means homosexual. You got to keep in mind also that this is a different culture. This is a different time. This isn't America today. And even in some circles, America today, that's a perfectly fine word they can use in terms of the people you're hanging out with. But it is not a very socially acceptable word. It's an insulting word. It's It's got a negative connotation. Yes, you could say that word could be reclaimed the same way the N-word could be reclaimed uh, by African-Americans in some shape or form. But for the most part, it is not a very acceptable word. So one of the things I noticed is that in the show, that word is thrown around left and right, especially by the bad guys when they're insulting somebody, you know, that sort of thing. But the translation is not that. The translation, when you read it, whenever they use that word, let's see, without getting in trouble here, it's P-U-S-S, and then you can guess what the last letter is. So it seems to me like they're going out of their way to soften the impact of that word for translation purposes. But in reality, that's not what was written. It was written because it was. it's supposed to be an insult you know, it is like the worst thing you can say to that character, or I guess in that culture, let's say, you know, when you insult the manhood of a man, that's the worst thing you can call them. Ironically, there is a very important character that is homosexual in the show. And he kind of, he doesn't flaunt it too much, but there are certain scenes where he's like, I don't give a crap. And he lets everybody know what's going on. But it's, it's an underlying kind of thing where you know, you have a character that does not seem to react too bad to it. He seems to be a, accustomed to that insult being thrown around, but he doesn't really engage in it too much because obviously it would be somewhat hypocritical of him to throw it, unless he's trying to, to, to kind of hide what he really is. But anyway, I found that very interesting that for translation purposes, I get the feeling they were trying to tone down the language a little bit. And I think that's bad because it, it, you know, that's not the intent of the writer, of course, and that's not the reality of what they're trying to portray. If, if they're crude and brutal, demonstrate that. Don't soften it with words. Let it hit you in the face the way it hits you in the face when you hear it for real. Uh, this way you get that, that impact. It is one of those things where you could put a disclaimer on it, you know, the language here is, you know, based on blah, 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 blah. You could do one of those things. That's fine. You know, the beginning of every episode, they tell you, you know, sex, violence, drug use, smoking, smoking. Uh, <laughs> I forget what else. There's some ridiculous ones that pop up sometimes that drive me completely bananas, like insulting language or something, you know, some weird uh, thing that you're like, really? You have to warn people that somebody's going to smoke? That's unusual. Especially when you're dealing with a period piece. Another thing that I want to mention also is that it's also very comforting hearing certain words that I haven't heard in many years or that I only hear like my family ever use. The word vos, uh, which means you, but it's a very informal you. You see, in Spanish, you have such crazy structure sometimes because when you say you, there is different kinds of yous. There's you 
the formal you for somebody who's older or respected, somebody you don't know that well, you use usted. And I hear a lot of usted, usted, usted. Okay, that's a very formal you. But if it's less formal, if it's less friendly, you hear two. Two, 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 you hear two. Okay, fine. But especially in Uruguay, where I'm from, the word vos is used way, 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 way more when it comes to a very informal way of saying you. And in this show, you hear it so much because, again, it's amongst themselves, amongst the people that are, you know, known to each other. Spanish has, like I said, a whole bunch of crazy rules, including uh, my favorite one is the fact that every noun is either male or female. So think about this in English. What would happen if you had to take every noun and give it a male or female article, a defined article, a specific article, in terms of saying a house is just about any old house, but the house is a very specific house. So there you have the word the and how it's used. Something like the, in Spanish, it has to have a male or a female connotation. So for example, the house, the car, the desk, is either male or female, depending on the spelling of the noun. Again, if you had to do this in English, it would be insane. <laughs> but it's, you know, you, you, you do this all the time, you know, when you are speaking Spanish. And it's one of those things that you have to learn, you know, when you're learning the language. But again, it's really weird when you hear things that you've heard when you've grown up you know, for a long time ago. And even now when you use the language, it's like, oh, wow, they kind of sound like me a little bit. Really interesting. But anyway, I digress as usual. This is a damn great show. I cannot believe I sat around all these years not even paying attention to it. I can't wait. I hope the Mexico side of the story is just as good. The show is sprinkled with real life footage and sometimes you even get the character like for example when they arrest somebody you'll see footage of them being arrested not only do they recreate the scene for dramatic purposes with the actors but then you'll get a quick couple of shots of the real footage of the real guy being arrested for real and being paraded around you know for the cameras again a very good show what i do with these shows is i, I try not to binge watch them I take my time, I do like one a night, and I just hit one, and then the following night I hit another one. So hopefully tonight I can start with uh, the Mexico side of the story. I hope they continue. I hope it's as good. I mean, I, I, from what I've been reading, it, it seems as if it's as good. I'm pretty sure Pedro Pascal is done with the show because, they're again, they're moving to a different country now. They're moving to a different time, so he really wouldn't be involved in any of that. But there are certain characters, I believe, that might be shown again because of the earlier, earlier connections. So I, I hope there's a couple of good guest spots here or there, some cameos or something. But like I said, for Pedro Pascal, he's already, he's a big shot now. <laughs> Between Mandalorian and uh, film work that he's got lined up, I mean... He's going to be in just about everything between films and television. He's got so many projects lined up at this time that I don't think he's going to be going back to Narcos at this point. A very good trajectory for the character. Even the, 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 his partner, you know, his arc kind of brings you all the way through the first and second season. And then with Pascal's character, that his partner kind of goes back to the States and he's the only one left out to deal with the, with the Cali cartel. So that brings you to the end of that. I assume that's kind of how it worked for real. They do tell you that obviously not everything is done exactly the same. So, you know, you don't have to copy it, you know, shot by shot. But I would say once again, you know, this is a great companion piece to those other two properties, the Miami Vice and the Scarface properties. If you like Sopranos, if you liked The Wire... This is kind of there. It is kind of in that wheelhouse where you have to follow these guys. And it's amazing. These episodes, like, they get so close. It's like two steps forward, three steps back. They score some wins, but then they get completely devastated the next episode or, or halfway through an episode. You know, the insanity of the government that they're dealing with in terms of how corrupt and how these drug cartels have bought off so many people. They just come, they had so much cash and money. There were scenes where they show you that they're burying money in, in the ground outside. They're just hiding money because they have no way of dealing with so much cash. And they are buying judges and they're buying, you wouldn't believe by the time you get to season three, how high up 
payoffs to government officials went, and it explains why this is, has had taken so long to finally clear it out. But it also gives you a wider perspective. You could kind of say, uh, in a very superficial matter, oh, this is about these foreign countries and how evil they are. And But guess what? You also get the internal view in terms of the CIA and even our own direct government of how entrenched they were in supporting just about anybody. They just didn't care who they were supporting as long as you're getting the results that you want. And the results that you want are not always the results that these frontline DEA agents were trying to get. There are other players, there are other goals that even they don't know about, that just when they think they know what game they're playing, they're really not. And it is very uh, frustrating to them how you know, everything seems to collapse around them half the time because they're never standing in solid footing. You go through a lot of characters, you get to meet a lot of them, and in a good modern way, which I guess I'm sure that's also how it happened for real, a lot of characters die, a lot of characters you get used to, they will get killed, they will die, they move on. You know, all kinds of wacky stuff happens. But again, this one is a great one, and I'm probably a little over halfway done with it, and so far so good. I didn't want to wait all the way through the next two seasons to start talking about it, because if you're looking for something to watch, this is a perfect thing to do, especially, you know, if you're into genre stuff and the connect, you know, the Star Wars connection, you know, the Pascal connection, you want to know where this guy came from, boom, there you go. Here's another feather in his cap. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We started off with Them Covenant. Uh, again, I cannot express how glad I was that I saw this. It had become, while I was watching it, my favorite show. It was the thing that I was looking forward to the most, being able to see an episode every night. I really cannot wait until the next season comes about. I'm not sure what time period they're going to deal with, who the cast is, what the particular horror situation will be. But if it's anything like this one, I'm there. Cannot wait. And then the second one we talked about was Narcos, which luckily I'm still in the middle of it because, as I mentioned before, I am now watching the Mexico side of Narcos, those other two seasons of the show. And I believe they are already possibly working on a third season. So there's a lot more coming uh, from that side of streaming services. It's amazing, again, how the streaming services have overtaken not only regular broadcast television, but even cable. They are so competitive now and such good shows that they're being able to put together. So until next time, thanks for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Imagine you were born in a poor family, in a poor country, and by the time you were 28 years old, you have so much money you can't even count it. Señores, yo soy Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviria. Haciendo negocios, así que pues fresco. Ustedes eligen plata o plomo. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> Steve Murphy, drug enforcement agent. In 79, the bad guys I was chasing were flip-flops. Oh, you running, huh? What's he got? What is that? When I started, a one-kilo grass bust was cause for celebration. Before long, we were seizing 60 kilos of coke a day. The hippies had been replaced by Colombians, and these guys didn't wear flip-flops. Witnessing the formation of the famed Medellin cartel. There was Jose Rodriguez Gacha, the Ochoa brothers, and last but not least, Pablo Escobar. Before long, the narcos were pulling in $5 billion a year. And that, America can take. Whatever's going on here? I'm in the hallway. Good and bad are relative concepts. This was my war.
Your party took money from Escobar. Everyone took money. By the way, it's all American money. If there's one thing I've learned in the narco world, it's that life is more complicated than you think. We had no idea what we were in for. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2021. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>